Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, sponsored by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer. And I'm Katie Hopkins, and we will be your hosts. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Sarah Monero. She is the founder and CEO of Tanagra Enterprises, a defense intelligence, space science, and technology consulting firm based in the National Capital Region. Sarah has worked within the national security and defense sector for over 20 years. Over her career, Sarah has worked in venture capital-backed private industry and both the executive and legislative branches of government. This includes roles with the House Armed Services Committee, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the Office of the Undersecretary of Air Force for International Affairs, and the National Air and Space Intelligence Center. She currently serves on the Board of Advisors for several space startups. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Iron Butterfly. Hey, hey, hey. I hope you're excited because we are. Totally excited. This is going to be the highlight of my week, y'all. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, most people laugh because, you know, when you ask people a question like, tell me about yourself, people just tell you like what they do or where they're from. And I always say, no, I want to know from the beginning, from the very beginning. Tell us about, um, tell us about yourself and where you're from and how you found yourself in the intelligence community. Yeah. So once upon a time ago... Um, yeah, so it all starts years and years and years ago. Now, so, um, look, I am, um, I am me, which is what I always tell my children, right? Like, it's okay to be you. It's all good. No. So, but, uh, it's a long and twisted story that starts with being born uh, in a small orphanage in South Korea and being uh, adopted by my family and then being raised in Ventura, California. And I will tell you that um, my mom is Irish Catholic. My dad was a Polish Jew. My grandfather remarried a black woman. Uh, We are the epitome of like an amazing American family. All the politically incorrect jokes because we had kind of every ethnicity represented um, very irreverent, but also very beautifully American in like every sense of the word. So grew up in Southern California and, uh, then decided to go to school at the university of Pittsburgh because I wanted something completely different. And I will tell you, Pittsburgh is completely different than Southern California, not only in like the weather, but also kind of, um, the people, the background, you know, those steel workers, that work ethic, I think is really fascinating and beautiful. And um, so I did that. And while I was in undergrad, 9-11 happened. And I think that that was a really formative uh, life event for everybody of my generation. Everybody remembers kind of where they were uh, at the time of those planes hitting. 
and um and that really shaped kind of what I was interested in. I was already interested in kind of politics, the philosophy of power, um, but that really put me on a trajectory to go get my master's degree, uh, which I did. And, and then my first job was at the National Air and Space Intelligence Center, which was very cool. And um, I was a counterspace analyst. And at the time, I kind of knew that counterspace was something that you, you know, made cookies on, beat your bread on. But really what I ended up learning and what they ended up teaching me is about other countries' capabilities to delay degrade, deny, or disrupt the advantages that we derive from space, from satellites. And so um, I did that, and that was at a time when the Chinese were choosing to physically destroy and blow up one of their satellites, an aging weather, weather satellite called the FY1C. So that was fascinating. And then uh, I was just kind of hooked, hooked in the space community. And I just continued doing that. And then moved around to different places in the Pentagon, worked for various secretaries of defense, doing space policy, nuclear weapons policy, missile defense policy. And then I got a call from somebody and they said, hey, you should come and work for Congress. And I said, heck no, Congress is crazy. And I hung up the phone. And then somebody else called. I think that's a very rational response, by the way, to this day. I agree. So... I think that's hilarious. <laughs> so then somebody else called and said, no, no, for real. We need a space person on the Hill. Will you please apply? And I said, I still think you people are crazy, but you may have my resume. Clearly you will have more qualified people. <laughs> and then I hung up. And then, you know, I went through a weird non-process and like nine months later, they called me up and said, congratulations, you're going to be the new staff director for the Strategic Forces Subcommittee on the House Armed Services. And I said, wow, y'all must have been in bad shape. <laughs> and then they said, also, we're doing this thing called Space Corps this year and we want to do this whole thing and grow this into like, you know, an independent service at some point. And I was like, I'm sorry, well, what? And they were like, oh, yeah, we think that needs to happen. And I said, oh, that might have been nice to know, like, as I was going through this interview process, but cool, 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 guys. Um, is there any way that we can change this or shape this or, and they were like, no, done deal. And then I spent the next five years uh, figuring out how to make a, a Space Force happen and supporting members of Congress in, in that endeavor. So I know Katie is going to kind of pull that thread a little bit, but I want to tell uh, the listeners that, um, you know, we're, we're virtual right now, but we can see each other because uh, we're, we're on, you know, a platform where we can see each other and, and our names are just like Zoom, you can see who's on. And um, in yours, it says Sarah, the space nerd, which I, I love. And I just thought I wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, there's no shame in my game. Uh, I'm just kind of on it at this point. And the space community, I like to tell people, is basically the same seven people licking the same ice cream cone at different RPMs. You're going to run into each other all the time. So, Sarah, I know you kind of took us through a little bit of the beginning of your career. And I know you had the opportunity. I mean, you just told us that you got charted with the mandate to create the Space Force into its own military force, right? You have had this just totally full and fascinating career across intelligence analysis and serving on the Hill and 
in international affairs, and then also in private industry. And I'm curious what you would say some of your kind of favorite jobs have been and why. Um, My favorite jobs have been the jobs that have allowed me to work with phenomenal people. And in almost any regard, regardless of the, the substance of what I was asked to do, if I was with people and with leaders that I could believe in, that made my job amazing. And so, you know, my first job was in the intelligence community. And um, I had probably the best boss that I've ever had in, in my entire career. Actually, just recently retired out of the National Space Intelligence Center now. His name was John Gass. His name is John Gass. And he was a phenomenal, phenomenal mentor. And uh, in a very highly technical organization, what technical degrees and technical skills were very, very important. And sometimes at the expense of analytical rigor or communication skills, he really saw the value in promoting people that not only could appreciate the technical aspects of what we were supposed to be analyzing, but could also communicate that effectively to people. And um, that has served me well throughout my career. And, you know, insofar as this podcast is kind of celebrating um, people in the intelligence community, it is such an important thing to understand that intelligence and intelligence production isn't done for intelligence sake. Intelligence and intelligence production is done so that you can translate that and empower policymakers, decision makers, and operators with information that's going to allow them to make the best decisions possible for themselves and for the nation. And so I love the fact that I've studied now space from an intelligence perspective, from a DOD perspective, from uh, a legislative perspective, and from an industrial base, you know, and private sector perspective. And I love being able to look at the challenges of the space community through all of those different lenses and recognizing that all of them contribute to hopefully what makes the space industrial base for America and the international community be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I really love that answer. And I know Megan's going to ask you a, a couple questions, I think, about you next. But one of the things that's always really interesting to me, like I didn't come from the inside the Beltway, right? Like I'm from a far, far away land. And so when people say, oh, you live in D.C., I say, well, but I don't live in D.C., D.C., right? Like I'm not in that sphere, right? I'm in like the public servant sphere of D.C., and I'm curious, having come from that world, like how, what was it like moving into like DC, DC? Like, was there anything that surprised you about making that jump to, to the Hill? Yeah, there's a, a couple of really interesting kind of career transitions. Um, and I will tell you that the transition from the executive branch to the legislative branch was probably the hardest career transition that I had to manage because it's not that I changed, but people's perceptions of my role changed. And so there were people in the executive branch that I felt like our circle of trust was very binary. You know, I either trusted you or I didn't. I knew that you had a need to know and the appropriate tickets and I could talk to you about a certain thing and trust your judgment there, or I couldn't. Um, And what you learn on the Hill is that 
the circle of trust is dynamic. It's always changing. Your circle of trust changes based off of the issue, the timing, the legislative vehicle, the other players involved. And it's a much more complex and nuanced calculus that you're doing on the Hill about your sources of information and and who you can trust and vet. And that ended up really hearkening back to a lot of the skills that I learned in the intelligence community about source validation, about, you know, different types of information um, and how useful that can be in different contexts and being able to analyze and interpret that in a methodological way that I think on the Hill, if you've only worked on the Hill, it you lack that skill set, right? And so that was interesting to me. The other, the second most rough career transition for me, quite frankly, was going from the intelligence community to basically a, a policymaking community or role in trying to figure out how to apply those skill sets that you learned in the IC to help you make better decisions on the policymaking side. And quite frankly, there's a lot of misinterpretation between both of those communities and what both of those communities' roles are. And I think that I'm a better analyst for existing in both of those communities, um, but it's uh, it's challenging. And those transitions were, were really difficult. Thank you for that. That's I, I think that's really helpful for our listeners and, and thinking about the different um, transitions and, and, and career paths and what that looks like and feels like and from from someone who's done it. So I appreciate that answer. Most people who know us or know Iron Butterfly know that we care way more about the person than the job or the career that they've held. And so we want you to learn more about you. Um, and how would you describe yourself? And who who is Sarah, really? Yeah, I'm sure you get this a lot, but this is a super uncomfortable discussion to have because nobody actually wants to talk about themselves, right? Like, it's a very weird thing. Uh, look, I mean, I think I'm, I'll, I'll be honest. There's probably, a, you know, what people think they know about me and then there's kind of how I view myself. Um, I think people think that I'm, the reputation that I that I got on the Hill and, and probably throughout the executive branch was that I was tough but fair. I, I asked tough questions, but I wasn't unfair in asking those questions, and I wasn't mean-spirited in them. I think a lot of people, when they I think about kind of how congressional staffers, professional staff members approach their job, they always think, oh, well, these people, you know, don't know all this much but they ask really tough, unfair questions to try to get us in a trap. I was never interested in like getting people in a trap. I was just interested in doing legitimate oversight and asking tough questions. So in my personal life, I'm probably the same, probably pretty tough. Try to be fair. Um, you know, I think people, I had somebody come up to me at a retirement ceremony and, and he said, you know, you asked really insightful, tough questions, but they always made us better. And he's like, you just, you seemed really smart and on top of it and quick. And I looked at him and, you know, I hadn't talked to him for a couple of years. And I said, honestly, I, I'm not that smart and I'm not that quick. And I know that I'm not that smart and quick, which just means that I got to do five times as much work to pull this off. <laughs> right. And it's so many people are like, but you always have an answer and, you know, you always seem prepared. And I was like, but what you don't see is that. 
I'm awake at three o'clock in the morning, reading up on stuff, thinking about stuff, criticizing myself, overanalyzing something that I said three weeks ago, right? Like, I think a lot of people are, are very happy, especially in DC, which tends to be a very transactional town. They're very happy seeing this first kind of layer of she seems very confident. She seems very competent. She, you know, always has a witty remark, is, you know, super technically deep in all of these things. At the end of the day, I'm pretty comfortable telling people that like, I'm making it by faking it, man. I'm trying real hard. Um, but there's a lot of growth that I've got to do and continue to do. And at this point in my life, um, that's along professional lines and personal lines. And I'm super okay admitting that. I'm not the best uh, wife or mother. <laughs> Ask my children, who I, I just gave a death stare to because they came in and were like, can we have chips? And I'm like, y'all, I just told you I'm on this thing. Give me five minutes. Um, you know, I uh, one of the other career transitions that I had was uh, initiated because I got diagnosed with breast cancer, um, pretty aggressive breast ca cancer in my late 30s. And I just decided I could not live the startup life and go through my breast cancer treatments at the same time. And going through breast cancer in your 30s has a real way of prioritizing your life for you. And I remember having a conversation with a boss where I just said, hey, look, uh, if I had five more years to give you, I'd give it to you and I'd give it to this company because I really, I really adore you and I think the company is doing great things. I said, but at the end of the day, I don't know that I have five more years. I do know that I've got two children under the age of seven and I got to make sure that I'm right for them. And so, you know, at this point in my life, I'm really looking for not so much work-life balance, but work-life integration. And really, I just want to be able to be the two kind of principles that I live by are authenticity and integrity and kind of all, all things that I do. And that's really what I'm trying to work at. And it doesn't make me the most popular person. And it doesn't make me the funnest person. But at all times, I can look in the mirror and say that I was authentic to myself. And I acted with integrity, both for myself and for the clients that I serve and, and the people that I support and interact with. And I think that's, the for me, the most important thing at this point. Yeah, I love that you mentioned authenticity and integrity. Uh, I think those are just two perfect words to describe you. And I think one of my favorite things about you is that you are like truly a one of a kind person and you are like completely and unapologetically just yourself. Uh, and I think you just radiate that in like every space that you walk into. And I'm kind of just wondering, like, was that something that you grew into over time? Or like, have you always been that way? Or like some combination of both? Yeah, I think it has been some combination of both. Because I've always had a strong sense of self, is the polite way of putting it. Um, but I've also forced myself to be in positions where you had you you had to act with integrity and authenticity, and you had to be able to speak truth to power. And it is uncomfortable. Uh, and it does not make you the most popular person in the room. Um, but at the end of the day, it's what needed to happen. And every small act of courage begets a larger act of courage. And 
I think that's great. And I think that's what's needed. I can also, at this point in my life, have enough perspective to say that I have paid a high price personally and professionally for speaking the truth the way that I do. And I hope that in the future, future generations don't have to pay as high of a price personally or professionally for being authentically themselves and doing what they think is right in all circumstances. And I'm really happy to be able to um, have been in those positions to make those choices and to live that way. Uh, but I really look forward to the day when other people are equally able to do that without paying such a high personal and professional price. I hear you. And I agree. I, 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 that's what I hope for the, the generations coming up behind us. So I have been told, so uh, Katie knows you and I, I, to our viewers, I do not know you personally. And I have been told that you um, have a few incredibly meaningful and interesting side hustles that you partake in. And I was wondering if you could share a few of those with us. Yeah, I don't know if they're interesting or meaningful, but I do have, I mean, it's 2023, so everybody's got a side hustle nowadays, right? Look, um, hobbies, uh, on top of like trying to be a decent person and trying to raise my children correctly and uh, be a wife. Yes, that's it. Be one of those two. Um, I play a lot of instruments. It's mostly stringed and fretted. So uke, guitar, banjo, mandolin, kind of that. This is already not interesting at all, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like every office that I've ever had, I've always kept at least a ukulele and guitar in, which, you know, people are like, that's weird. (laughs) Uh, Like the first day on committee, I walked in and we were all changing offices and I walked in with like a uke and a guitar and I said, hey, I'm the new strategic forces person. And they were like, what are you carrying? Well, I have a ukulele and a guitar. I just need to know where my office is. They literally just rolled their eyes and were like, we can't even with you right now. And I was like, "Mm, I'm going to take this office. (laughs) There you go. Um, So I do that. Um, I'm also big into painting um, and drawing and all of that. And so uh, the viewers cannot see this. I have several large tattoos. Um, I have drawn all of my own tattoos. I have drawn several other people's tattoos. So I have drawn all my own tattoos and other people's. Um, I also am right now into large format abstract oils, uh, which essentially just means I build huge, huge canvases that I need to like rent trucks to move because they won't fit in anybody's car or truck. And then I splatter paint over them very cathartically. Uh, yes. And um, yeah, do a lot of painting in my spare time. And you also just made your first public appearance as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I don't, I guess I, I guess I did file that as comedy. I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> but yes, I did DC, the DC Capitol Fringe Fest. I did... Um, a one woman show that was based off of having cancer in the middle of COVID called all the C words. There were definitely funny parts of it. There were some not so funny parts of it, but uh, it actually did get reviewed very well and got rated as one of the best of 
DC Capital Fringe for 2023, which was very generous of some, I'm sure, unpaid reporter slash reviewer. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You have way more. I mean, you do a lot. You seem to have your hands full. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sarah, I know one thing that's also really important to you is your relationships. And I've heard you say many times that, you know, D.C. is a very transactional town, which it is, right? And you have managed to build these incredibly meaningful communities and relationships. And... I'm curious if you would, like, how would you, if you were talking to someone who had just moved to the area, like, what would you tell them in in terms of just how to, like, how to do that? Like, how to build relationships like that? Yeah. um, So, yeah, let's start with, I I do think D.C. is a painfully and unnecessarily transactional town. It's a town where people very much care about what you can do for them in the moment. Um, who you know, who you work for, what kind of proximity to power you you may have or perceived proximity to power that you may have. Um, at the end of the day, people are just people. Just value people for being people. You know, like I, I don't maintain relationships with people because of what they can do for me. I maintain relationships with people because they're decent people. I naturally... Actually, don't like people. I'm pretty much a misanthrope. I, you know, it's just not people are not my, really my thing. Um, and so if I'm going to bother to like actually try to develop and maintain a relationship with somebody, it's generally beyond just the immediate transaction. It's like, this is actually a person that I want to be able to call. This is actually a person I, I want to actually have in my life. And what you'll find is in D.C., you know, there's actually a lot of people that come to D.C. believing that they're coming to make a difference. Their heart really is in the right place, but they get stuck in this weird transactional loop that is D.C. And so if you can peel back to that, you know, core incentive of why they wanted to actually come to DC to make a difference, what motivates them? You know, those are people worth having a conversation with and keeping in your life. And I don't know, I I just feel like you should be able to do that regardless of the specific transaction that you have going on. Right. And so people, once you've been on the Hill, because it's such a weird experience, people will constantly call and say, how did you get on the Hill? It seems like you had so much power. I want to get on the Hill. The first thing I generally say is if you think I had power when I was on the Hill and you want that kind of power, then you're the wrong person. Also, you're probably an idiot. Like, let's not. Um, But, you know, what I tell them is like, look, it's not that I wanted to go to the hill. And so I, you know, chase the hill. It's that quite frankly, I was working the Brazil country desk for the office of the secretary of defense for policy at the time when the hill called. Um, and though I will tell you that it's, it's a bad, really bad day. If the strategic forces, people have to call the Brazil country desk officer for a substantive <laughs> issue. 
So it's not that, you know, I had pursued them and then they asked me to go and interview. It's that, you know, three years prior, I had worked with the Air Force. I had worked in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy and Space Policy, literally like three or four years beforehand. And I kept those relationships warm, not because they were going to offer me a job one day, but because they're hilarious people. (laughs) And so I figured, why the heck not? And so looking beyond the um, kind of immediate position and transaction, I think is really important. And just recognizing that people are people and giving people, um, I, I tell people to just save some space for grace right? Because everyone's going through stuff and you don't know what it is. It's not visible or apparent, but being there for those people is important. It's quite frankly, more important than what your position or your job is mandating you to do. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the first podcast season where we've had a theme. So this is new for us, but our theme this season is the butterfly effect. And by that, we don't mean the Ashton Kutcher film from the early 2000s. We mean the idea that small things actually matter and individuals actually matter and can make a difference. And our question for you is just how do you believe you've been able to make a difference as a single person, whether personally or professionally? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because it requires amount of perspective that I think people don't generally think about themselves, right? I mean, you're always in that foxhole. And so pulling yourself back up is another one of these interesting moments. Um, It's a a weird question that, you know, what would be interesting is to actually talk to other people (laughs) and see how I've affected them, good, bad, or otherwise. There's probably a whole range. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and uh, I was like, you know, people don't, they don't really thank me for helping to uh, write the language that established the space force. There's not a lot of thanks that comes from that. (laughs) They were like, really? People don't just come up to you and say like, that was so amazing. Thank you for everything. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't happen. Um, At the end of the day, I hope that people uh, recognize that like, I'm just another person who's trying really, really hard, probably trying a lot harder than people see. Um, And then I'm just trying to be a decent person. And, you know, I don't really want a lot of credit for that. There's a lot that goes on in the intelligence community and the policymaking community, certainly in the legislative community that is never really written for the front pages. But I do appreciate when people come to me And it has happened every once in a while where people will come and just say like, hey, you asked tough questions, but those were great questions and they made us better for it. And that's good enough for me. That's awesome. And I'll tell you actually my favorite Sarah story. And this is just an example of how you've made an impact on me. Um, So Sarah mentioned her favorite favorite boss, um, John Gass. So we had actually gone to... um, to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to go uh, visit him. And so Sarah, as she just mentioned, is a total big shot. She basically wrote the legislation that created the Space Force. And she rolled up to this meeting with a rainbow fanny pack and flip-flops on. And I was like, this is the most 
powerful woman in this entire building. And she was totally and fully authentically herself. Um, and I feel like that was the first time that I had seen somebody walk into a meeting like that and really just be like unashamed to be them. Um, so that's what I think of when I think of Sarah. That's awesome. I think I was also reading Grapes of Wrath at the time. <laughs> I like flopped onto the table. <laughs> you were carrying Grapes of Wrath. That's such an important detail too. I can't believe I didn't remember that. <laughs> that is amazing. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is uh, important just for the listeners, special, especially for the young listeners that are interested in um, in the intelligence community and national security. But the Space Force is now the 19th um, organization to be a part of. It's an intelligence organization, right? So it's number 19. Yes. Okay. That, I think that's pretty cool. So I, I wanted to make sure that listeners knew that. <laughs> So we are unfortunately at the end and our listeners know that at the end of each episode, we end with the same question. And in keeping with the, the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, um, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? This is the question that I labored over the most because I was like, what? I've been called a lot of words that are probably not safe for work <laughs> or this podcast. Um, I have no shame. So, you know, I mean, my stand up was literally called all the C words. <laughs> so we'll just let that settle in for a moment. But I mean, if you really wanted to go like super nerdtastic, because you know, that's what I am. I'm cool with that. I think it would be like something spectacular, like plasma unicorn. Oh <laughs> my God. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. Come on. The fourth state of matter. It's like super intensely hard to define and actually is pretty much ubiquitous in the, in the universe. It's what makes stars glow but is also, you know, really arcane. I mean, you got to be a nerd to actually know what plasma is, and then you get into, like, plasma states and free electrons and blah, blah, blah. Who knows? And also unicorns, because they're amazing. Plasma unicorn. I want... You need a T-shirt. You need to... So I'm a swag person. You need to get a T-shirt that says plasma (laughs) unicorn on it. Oh, my God. I would buy it. I would buy it, too. Are you kidding? We're going to, we just need to make her one. I'm just doing it because it's so amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I, you cry, I don't know, Katie, you can, you can argue this fact, but I think um, we have laughed the most, laughed the most in this episode than any of our other 55 episodes that we've had. I think you're right. Sarah, you're pretty funny. <laughs> you gotta be good at something. <laughs> Well, Sarah, thank you so much for saying yes to this. Um, this has just been such a such a treat for us. And I know um, our listeners will really enjoy getting to know you um, and some of the amazing things that you've done, but more importantly, how amazing you are as a person. So thank you again for, for coming on. Thank you, ladies, so much for having me. Um, this was a real treat. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast. We want to thank the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School for their technical sponsorship and amazing women of the IC for their promotion. 
To learn more about Iron Butterfly Media, visit our website at www.ironbutterflymedia.com. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. To find out more about AWIC, email amazingwomen.ic at gmail.com. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And lastly, we want to thank Amanda Young for production assistance and Gracie Richburg for marketing assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.